good to be here this morning. Um, this is my first time ever stepping foot in Sycamore View, uh, but there are a surprising number of connections between where I'm preaching at Bamel down in Houston uh, and here. Uh, first of all, Jonathan Ross, Josh's brother, was the worship minister at Bamel for a while. Uh, and through that connection, several of our members have connections to Josh and, of course, this church. So I don't know how many of you, if there's anyone in this room that went on the trip to Israel recently. I need some hands. All right. So you guys know the burden of knowing Michael Boykin. Uh, a dear friend of mine, it's connected uh, me and Josh uh, through his love for this church. Um, and then, of course, what Anna mentioned this morning as well. Um, one of my most cherished memories is working alongside Anna at Golf Course Road in Midland. Uh, and our daughter, who's 12 now, but uh, was just starting kindergarten when we first got to Golf Course Road, was Anna's little buddy uh, anytime she came up with me to the office. Uh, and I just have so many cherished memories of seeing the two of them and the way Anna poured into her. And so I hope you know what a gift you have in your children's minister. Um, she is doing such good work, I am sure. She's been such a gift to our family, and I know she's a gift to, to your families as well. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to be in John chapter 16. Uh, and so if you want to join me there, either on the screen or with your Bibles, hear these words from Jesus. I have much more to say to you. More than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify Me because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what He will make known to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we gather again around sacred Scripture. Around these words of Jesus our Lord, that speak fresh yet again today, though they were spoken so long ago, we still hear your voice through them. And so, Father, I pray that you would attune our ears, that, you, that we might hear from you which you would give us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, my life was forever changed by two words. I do. Now, here's the thing though. My life was actually changed twice by those two words. There was the big I do at my wedding, but there was a prior I do that was just as important. Uh, my now wife, and I were dating the summer before I went off to college. And we started doing all these kind of college ministry activities together and flirting with one another the whole time. 
And there was one night where we had a movie night at one of our friend's houses, and I had a car, and she did not, and she needed a ride home afterwards. And I, being the servant that I am, graciously volunteered. And we had kind of been talking and going on some group dates for a while. We kind of both were into each other that we hadn't said that yet. And on the way home, she looks at me. I remember the stoplight I was about to turn at. She looks over at me, and I don't know where this came from, though she knew exactly what she was doing, I will tell you. She looks at me and she says, you know, no one likes me. And I knew this was the moment. This was a life-changing moment right here. And so I, I look over and I say in my deepest, manliest voice, I do. <laughs> and we go to her parents' house. I drop her off. And by the time we are there, we are boyfriend, girlfriend. I told her, and this tells you way too much about my high school dating career than you need to know, but I told her, you know, you'll be my first kiss. And she said, anytime you're ready. And I turned my hat backwards and said, let's go. <laughs> Those two words, I do. I knew they were important in that moment. I could sense that this was a big decision. But there is no way I could know what I know now, looking back on that moment. The three kids that we have together. Ava, Jacob, Matthew. The different churches where I've ministered and where we have worshipped together. Her own career as an oncology nurse and all the shapes that would take over the years. The challenges, the highs, all of that. I had no concept of what I was getting into in that moment when I said, I do. I, I see that moment clearer now than I did then. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment, too. What we hear in John chapter 16 is part of what's called the farewell discourse. It's Jesus' last words for his disciples before he's crucified. And he's trying to prepare them for what they're about to experience. But he knows that. It's not going to make sense to them all at once, right at the beginning. That over the next 72 hours, they are going to experience His brutal crucifixion in the morning of Saturday, and in the joy of resurrection on Sunday. And He knows all of that is absolutely mind-blowing. He says, I have so much more to tell you. There's so much for you to understand about what's about to happen. But you're not ready yet. It's going to take some time. In fact, when this section of John opens, Jesus says a similar thing just about what they're experiencing at the Lord's Supper. He says, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. 
Do you understand what I have done for you? In that moment, Jesus is talking about washing their feet. But I think there's more to it because I think that's the exact same question that Jesus might ask us on the other side of His resurrection. Do you understand what I have done for you? And in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection, the answer from the disciples has to be no. We don't fully understand what we have just witnessed. It's going to take time for us to, for us to understand this. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, Brian Zond, uh, who preaches over in Missouri, talks about this trip that he took called the Camino de Santiago. It's an ancient pilgrimage site that people, Christians, have been walking for 1,200 years. It's a 500-mile trail across Spain and Portugal. And he's preparing for this trip, and in prayer, he feels like God is leading him to make four commitments while he's on this trip. The first one is this. You need to enter every church that you see along the way. It's an old pilgrimage site. Lots of churches the whole way. Enter every church you see. The second thing is, in each of these churches, what I want you to do is pay attention to every cross that you see. And oftentimes in these churches, Jesus is pictured crucified on these crosses. Would you pay attention to every cross you see? And then the third thing is, I want you to ask yourself the question, what does this mean? And the fourth part is, don't be too quick to give an answer. Don't be too quick to give an answer. Why? Because it can be so easy to rush to the ways and things we've always seen in the cross, but what he's wanting to do is slow down because there are depths there that will remain unseen. We don't slow down enough to ask the question, what does this mean? And not rush to an answer because the truth is, Scripture itself is overwhelmed with the meaning of the cross. That's why as you peruse the New Testament, there are all these various ways of describing what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you ask the New Testament writers, what does this mean? They have a variety of answers as they themselves try to process the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that the cross is where Christ gives His life as a ransom for many. Satan was holding our lives captive, but Jesus pays the ransom price and sets us free. In Romans, Paul tells us that we are crucified with Christ, and because of that, there is no condemnation before God anymore. In 2 Corinthians, we find out that the cross 
is the reconciliation of all things unto God. In Galatians, we hear about the justification of every sinner. And justification has to do with belonging, which is why Paul says, now on the other side of the cross, if you see it as Christ means us to see it, it means that there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, because the cross of Christ triumphs over those. In Colossians, we hear that the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle. The powers and authorities triumphing over them at the cross. In Philippians, the cross is the epitome, the ultimate example of humility. As Christ dies as a slave. In Hebrews, the cross is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice In 1 John, we find out that the cross is the revelation. It reveals, it unveils the very character of God. And what it unveils to us is that God is love. How do we know that? Because of the cross. The Scripture itself is overwhelmed by the meaning of the cross. And so it uses all these ways of getting it, helping us see the depths there. The truth is, our gospel, the gospel we have received, can be summed up in three simple phrases. If you want to know the gospel, this is it. Christ died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's the gospel we have received. And what we do is we spend our entire lives unpacking those three truths. All of our Christian walk, all of our discipleship pours out of that gospel. Christ died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So much meaning is jam-packed into those three phrases. You can spend a lifetime trying to figure out what that means. In fact, you can spend more than a lifetime thinking about these things. Did you realize it took 451 years for the church to come together and figure out what we meant by saying Jesus is the Son of God? Something that we teach in Sunday schools, that God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. We take that for granted. But it took 451 years for the church to, to get to a place where it was like, this, this is what we mean when we say that. If we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying that He's fully human, but, but without sin, that He's fully God and yet He suffered. And we know that doesn't quite make sense, but... But this is what we confess. 451 years. You know what was happening 451 years ago? The year 1571. William Shakespeare was seven years old. That's how long it took for the church to sit with the reality of who Jesus was. They knew the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus is risen. Jesus will come again. But to begin to understand that, took many lifetimes. 
And I sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I get jealous of those first disciples because they got to be there, right? They got to actually see and witness these things. But sometimes I wonder if they might actually be jealous of us. That for 2,000 years we've gotten to think about and unpack and understand and sit with the cross. That we see things now that they couldn't have possibly seen right there in the midst of it. Because the spirit of truth has been at work in our midst, drawing us deeper into the mystery of the gospel, drawing us deeper into the meaning of what it means when we say that Jesus died, Jesus has risen, Jesus will come again. And if we want to continue on that path, continuing to unpack this great mystery we've been given, this great gift of the gospel, to understand what this means, what that requires from us, is great humility. We have to admit that we don't know it all. Uh, there's a story about a teacher that invites the star student uh, over to his house. And the star student is very excited about this. And as he's invited in, he starts hitting the teacher with all his, his impressive knowledge. He wants his teacher to know exactly how much he knows. He is the star student, after all. And being hospitable, the teacher invites him for a cup of coffee, and as he's listening to this student brag about how much he knows, he pours his cup of coffee. He keeps pouring, keeps pouring, until coffee is overflowing onto the table. And the student's like, hey, whoa, pay attention, what are you doing? And the teacher tells him, if your cup is already full, I can't add any more to it. If you want to learn from me, you're going to have to empty yourself a bit. Acknowledge that you don't know it all. Uh, now, okay, y'all know maybe the, the trend of dad jokes is going around? Okay, there's only one thing worse than a dad joke. That's a preacher joke. Um, but I'm going to tell one. And don't ruin the punchline if you've already heard this. Uh, three people die on the same day. Catholic priest, Baptist minister, Church of Christ preacher. They show up at the pearly gates. Peter's welcoming them. And he tells them, all right, there's, there's one final quiz to get in. And we'll take you one by one and see how you do. You're going to go and have a conversation with Jesus. Catholic priest goes in first. About an hour later, he walks out shaking his head. How could I have been so wrong? Baptist ministers next in. He, he goes in, has this conversation with Jesus. 30 minutes later, he walks out. How could I have been so wrong? Church of Christ preacher walks in. Five minutes later, Jesus walks out. How could I have been so wrong? <laughs> there are times when we think we know Jesus better than he knows himself. There are times when we can be tempted to think that we know it all, we have it all, we have all the answers. And the moment we think that, we lose touch of getting in, seeing the depths of what the gospel is. Uh, Thomas Aquinas 
a profound kind of late medieval writer, theologian, wrote something called the Summa Theologica, in which he answers all the questions. He's got all the answers. He's the smartest guy still today. People look at him like he's one of the smartest Christians ever to live. But before he finishes writing this Summa Theologica, where he answers all the questions, he has this vision of Christ, this encounter that he can't explain. And after that experience, he returns to go sit at his desk and keep working on his book, and he finds that he can't do it anymore. And he says, everything I've written up to this point feels like straw to me now. Because he encountered Jesus in his fullness. And everything he thought he knew before just feels like fluff now. Now in the presence of the living Lord. There is meaning there in that encounter that cannot be captured with mere human words. And this is our challenge for us. That as we continue journeying towards Jesus, what that's going to require is allowing Jesus to take us places we didn't know we needed to go. To allow Jesus to reveal himself, to continue to let us know who he really is. We've got to take a cue from the Apostle Paul who wrote, wrote this in Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ. Not know about Christ, I want to know Christ. Know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. I want to know that Jesus died, Jesus is risen, Jesus is coming back, and I don't just want to know about that, I want to experience that in my own body. To entrust myself fully that somehow my own suffering is connected to the very suffering of Jesus. I'm united with him. And he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, the humility there. He knows he doesn't know it all yet. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Don't be too quick to give an answer. Keep pressing. Keep searching for Jesus who died and is risen and is coming again. Because there is no end to that journey. There is no end to the eternity and the infinity that is in God. And that we get to pursue, we get to unveil, we get to, to see. If we're willing to empty ourselves a bit. Acknowledge that we don't know it 
all. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the Gospels is the transition from Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 9. So in Mark chapter 8, you have this really weird story about Jesus healing a blind man. And the first time he heals him, he says, all right, can you see now? And the guy goes, uh, kind of? People are like walking around like trees. It's just really weird. And Jesus said, okay, let's try again. He heals him again, opens his eyes. All right, can you see now? Yeah, no, I can see. It's like Jesus is the first optometrist, one or two. <laughs> Weird story. But I think Mark tells us because we need to have that in the back of our minds when we read what's next, in Jesus' encounters with Peter. Because Peter's a blind man too. Uh, the next story right after that is when Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer and die. He tells them exactly what's about to happen here in his ministry. And of course, this is the moment when Peter took, takes him aside and says, no, 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 that's, that's not who you are. That's not the Jesus I am following. That's not what a Messiah does. A Messiah comes and conquers enemies. He's, he's not conquered by his enemies. This is not how the story goes. That's not who you are, Jesus. Of course, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of human beings. You're not seeing clearly, Peter. And then, right after that, the very next story in Mark chapter 9 is the transfiguration of Jesus. And Peter's there. Peter goes up on that mountain and he sees Jesus in all of his glory. All the divinity pouring out of him. That mountaintop full of light. Jesus is unveiled in that moment. And I like to, to think that in that moment, Peter's own eyesight is healed. He thought he saw Jesus clearly before. But no, there's more to Jesus than he ever imagined. And that same gift, that same healing is available to us, church. And as we keep putting one foot in front of the other in our path of discipleship, Jesus continues to be unveiled to us. And we, like Paul, become united with him so that our own suffering is like the suffering of Jesus and we entrust ourselves knowing that when he returns we will share a glory just like his, just like Peter saw on that mountaintop. And that's good news. Uh, in the next few moments we're going to have an opportunity to take communion together. And I love this moment because it's one of those moments that helps peel back the veil. If you want to know who Jesus is, it's not just book knowledge, it's, it's experiences like this of taking bread, the cup, eating it with your brothers and sisters. And so there are six tables gathered around this room. Uh, and after I pray, I'm going to invite you to go to one of those tables and partake in communion 
with one another and with Jesus himself who meets us here. Uh, and I also want you to know there will be a shepherd right over to my right. If you need prayer, uh, do not leave today without receiving that gift. It is such a gift to know you are not alone. So if there's a burden you're carrying, this is a community that wants to come alongside you, I know. And so if you need prayer, you will be lifted up today uh, if you need that from a shepherd here. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes Heal us of the false images we have of you. The ways in which we think we have you all figured out. Give us pause as we meditate on your death and your resurrection and your coming victory. I pray that we would not be too hasty saying we figured it all out. But come and show us the way. Would you gently take our hand and bring us to that mountain of transfiguration that we might see you fully and love you even more deeply. And be with us as we take this bread and this cup that through these physical reminders we might taste and see that you are good it's in Christ's name we pray Amen